Hey, I'm Emory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Episode 15. Two hours later, Polly crashes. One of the drones monitoring him emits a piercing shriek and begins flashing red. His mouth gapes open as he alternately struggles to draw a breath and grows preternaturally still. Fallon leaps into the middle of the crowd of technicians and starts shouting orders. Macha rushes in seconds later. Heart rate extremely abnormal, Macha confirms, checking the screaming drone. He's jumping from tachycardia to almost stasis levels. Fanny hides her face and begins to cry. Fallon swipes at the drone's floating hollow display until she finds what she wants, a 3D real-time image of Polly's heart. We can see the chambers fluttering and spasming, dramatically out of rhythm. And deep in his left ventricle, there's a large, bright blue spot that ebbs and flows with Polly's gasping. The two women put their heads together and confer, neither wearing hopeful expressions. A technician brings both a syringe and a hypodermic, which Fallon sets aside. We need to speak to Fanny privately, Machis finally says, and my heart drops. Please let them stay, Fanny says, wiping tears from her face with the back of her hand. I need them to stay. Macha looks at Graham, Arden, and me, all wearing our heartbreak on our faces, and nods her permission. It's not good, Fallon says, speaking mostly to Fanny but addressing all of us. The antidote hasn't completely purged the blue from his heart. He's not going to make it. Fanny's hand covers her mouth, holding back the sobs that are threatening to overtake her entire body. Is there anything you can do? She asks in a whisper. Macha and Fallon exchange glances. It's Fallon who finally speaks. We can put him back into stasis until we can figure out why this happened and what we can do about it. Fanny blanches. But we might never be able to revive him. But he'll be alive, Fallon says. At least he'll still be alive. And then we'll have time to try. If he stays like this, he'll be dead within hours and there will be nothing we can do. Fanny looks back at us, then at Polly. With tears streaming down her cheeks unimpeded, she croaks out, All right, then that's what we have to do. One bonus, says Fallon. The blue will stabilize him. We should be able to give him the awakening cocktail and bring him to consciousness so you can talk to him for a minute, if you would like. It, it won't hurt him to do that? Fanny asks. No, it won't. It will be a very brief time, though, and then the blue will take over. Yes, please. I want to speak to my brother. One of the technicians passes much of the hypodermic needle and she begins to work on Polly while Fanny tries to wipe away her tears and get herself under control. Soon, Polly relaxes and his heartbeat and respiration begin to slow. Macha squirts the contents of the syringe into Polly's mouth and gestures for Fanny to come close. He won't be able to see you, remember, but he'll feel it if you touch him, and he should be able to talk to you, she says. He can probably hear you now. Go ahead. Fanny, still visibly shaking, approaches the bed and leans down so her mouth is near Polly's ear. She strokes his cheek with her hand gently. Hey, you little rascal, she says. It's me. I love you. Are you awake? A few seconds later, I hear Polly's voice, fainter and quieter than I ever imagined it could be, say, Hey, sister, I love you too. Who turned out the lights? Nobody, silly. You're in clinical and your eyes are covered so they can heal. Your arms are strapped down too, so you might not be able to feel them either. You hurt them in an accident. Do you remember? Oh, accident. Kinda, I remember. Everybody okay? 
Yes, everybody's okay. You've been out for a while, and you're going to be going back to sleep in a little bit so you can get better. But I'll be here when you wake up again, Fanny says in a soft, light voice, trying to sound conversational and calm despite the tears rolling down her face. Don't worry about a thing. I'm leading the pod while you're recovering. Graham's filling in as coordinator. Arden is doing a great job with the warehouse, and Faith is keeping maintenance on its toes. All good, Polly says. His voice has already become noticeably weaker. He pauses several seconds before he speaks again. Your boyfriend, he murmurs, needs to be good to you or he's in trouble with me. Don't worry about that either. I broke up with him. Good. Didn't like him. He didn't make you happy. Polly is barely whispering now. Macha, whose eyes have stayed on the drone above Polly's bed, moves forward and touches Fanny on the arm. Fanny looks up in comprehension, her face stricken with grief. She plants a soft kiss on her brother's forehead. Macha's telling me you're about to go to sleep again. So you rest easy and get well. And remember, I love you, love you, love you forever and to the stars, little brother, she says, her voice breaking as she speaks. I love you, Fanny. You always take care of me. Polly exhales deeply, and the faint tinge of blue creeps up his neck and across his face, sealing him off from us a second time. Fanny bursts into inconsolable sobbing. Macha steps forward and wraps her arms around her, and I can almost see her as a child, holding the hand of her baby brother, waiting for him, walking with him, protecting him. They've laughed and cried together, fought with and fought for each other, and held each other close for more than half a century. Every other relationship on this planet seems superficial by comparison. Meanwhile, Graham, Arden, and I are all wiping away tears, and even Fallon hides her face behind her holo for a moment until she can recompose herself. As technicians reset the drones to track Polly's stasis vitals, I wonder what might lie in store for us. In a matter of hours, a company skiff will be coming for Fallon, no doubt soon to be followed by a security presence to help quell the terrible, quote, anarchists, unquote. I hope there might be some mercy yet in the company's approach, as Arden has consistently tried to make me believe, but at this point, all I can see is the same mindless apparatus that overtook Homeworld nine years ago and caused me to lose my community, my home, my lover, my trust, and nearly my life. After conferring, Fallon and Matcha elect to give the other patients more time before waking them up. We leave together as a group, Graham walking with a protective arm around Fanny, who is still weeping softly. Soon, Graham and Fanny branch off and head toward their pod while Fallon, Arden, and I continue on toward ours. That's when Arden says quietly, A communique came while you were working with the patients, Fallon. The official company transport has arrived at Meridian Transfer Station. They'll send us gift for you tomorrow after the crew completes its mandatory rest break. Fallon scowls. So I have about 26 hours, give or take. Hopefully everyone will be awake and back to normal by then and you won't actually need me here anymore. We'll always need you here, I say. The comment is spontaneous, but as I say it, I know it's true. Fallon snorts derisively and starts to respond, but I don't let her. I mean it, I say. Look at yourself. You came here determined to get in and out as quickly as you could. You mistrusted everyone. You were isolated and suspicious. And now you have friends. You went out of your way and risked your career to help people you didn't even know just because you thought you could. You're part of us now. You might not want it or need it, but there will always be a place for you on Iona. I can see Fallon trying to come up with a smart and dismissive comeback. Maybe she's too tired tonight, or maybe we've all finally gotten through to her. As we round the corner and cross into our pod's courtyard, she looks at me and simply says, Thank you. We say our goodnights and head off to our rooms. 
I tumble gratefully into our hammock and fall asleep before Arden manages to crawl in beside me. Chapter 27 I awake to the rising chimes feeling anything but rested. Arden is already dressed and out of the room. I take my time getting ready, washing my face, brushing my hair. The company is coming, my friends are in danger, and a traitor is about to be revealed. My Iona could change into something I hardly recognize as early as this afternoon. The rest of the pod is bustling about as usual, but there is a particularly somber cluster of people sitting together at the end of the table. Fallon, Arden, Mabry, and Winda. Everyone looks tense. Tough night last night, Winda says, slipping her arm around me as I sit down next to her. Yeah, I say with a sigh. What's the game plan for today? Matcha says the patients are doing well, Fallon says. She's expecting us at clinical to complete the process and wake them up at around 1,300 hours. Hopefully that will be before the jailers arrive to drag me away. The knot in the pit of my stomach gets bigger and a heavy, uncomfortable silence descends over our group. Fallon breaks it. We're getting ahead of ourselves and it's not helping, she says. I'll be right back. She rises from the table and trots down the hall to her room. When she returns, she's wearing a screaming pink lipstick that could only have come from Holly's stash, and she's carrying a flask not unlike Fanny's, along with five small cylindrical glasses. It's time for a toast, she says, pouring a golden foamy liquid into each glass. She places one in front of each of us and takes the last one for herself. My mother and father were born on Homeworld, but my mother's parents are from Gordonia, the newest independent homeworld in our system. Arden's forces helped that planet and its entire sector maintain their independence. So this is an appropriate toast for us today on Iona. It's my mother's special Gordonian brew. To Gordonia and Iona. To Gordonia and Iona, we all repeat, lifting our glasses. Fallon throws the shot back in one gulp. Arden and Mabry do the same. I sip it first. Although the taste isn't unpleasant, there's an odd aftertaste that makes it seem more like medicine than a celebratory beverage. Shoot it, Arden encourages. It's better than that stuff we brewed up on Homeworld. He has a point. Next to me, Wenda screws up the nerve to throw all of hers back, coughing and choking a little in its aftermath. I take another sip, then follow suit. The shot burns pleasantly going down. What was in that brew? I ask Fallon, and she winks at me in response. Family recipe, she says. Top secret. It's the last moment of levity we have that morning. While others go off to their assignments, Fallon and I discuss what should happen with the equipment and samples in number four. I've got a good checklist for you that I've already directed to your holo, Fallon says. It explains what everything is and how to maintain it in a viable state. I've spent enough time with Matcha so that if you need to reconstitute any of the materials we've been using after I'm gone, she should be able to help. She's got a copy of the checklist, too. What if you don't go back? I ask. What if sand lizards fly, she responds, not looking up from her holo. I tried to fight the recall. Arden got tactical involved. Graham called in a bunch of favors, but they're still coming for me. Is it possible to simply refuse to leave with them? She looks thoughtful for a moment. I saw that happen once, she says. He's dead now. All righty, then. We don't mention it again. Fallon departs for clinical at 1100 hours to help prepare the patients for their final dose of antidote. It feels like only a handful of minutes have gone by when Matcha hails me at 1245 to let me know that things are on schedule and it's time for my part in the process. I ping Mabry and Arden to let them know I'm heading for clinical. Next, I hail Fanny to check in. When she responds, her voice is tired and still raw from crying. Thank you for hailing instead of just showing up, she says, her exhaustion clear. I don't want company, but I can't seem to get rid of Tomas. 
He hailed last night after we left clinical. He just hailed me again to announce he's coming by after lunch to make me feel better. If he was really trying to make me feel better, it might be all right, but he only wants to know everything that happened that he wasn't a part of. I don't have the energy to support some nosy gossip's ego. This doesn't surprise me. Tomas has always struck me as awkward and grasping. Didn't you break up with him? I did, but he apparently didn't notice, Fanny says, pausing to blow her nose. I'm hiding out of my room today. If he knocks on the door, I'm not answering. If he breaks the door down, I'm kicking his ass out of here. I can't deal with any more crap from anyone, and I'm not inclined to feel bad about it. You have my full support, I say, and log off. I arrive at exactly 1300 hours. Fallon and Macha are waiting in the blue ward, reviewing notes on a holo. Polly has been moved down the hall to a private room, so only Carloa and the mystery man are here now, both apparently sleeping peacefully. Soft light streams in through the window at the far end of the room, highlighting their faces. It feels so different than it did last night, and for a moment I'm overwhelmed with a powerful sense of optimism. Fallon looks up when I come to the doorway and waves me inside. She looks serious and drawn, except for a fresh coat of the vibrant pink lipstick. I'm struck by how the color on Holly looks delicate and sweet, like cotton candy, but on Fallon it reaches a level of powerful in-your-face intensity I would never have expected this shade to achieve. "'Where's Graham?' she asks. "'Did he come with you?' No, I didn't see him. I stayed at the Warren after you left. I thought he'd already be here. He must be at his pod. I tap into his private channel and hail him, but there's no answer. He's probably on his way, I say, with more confidence than I feel. It's not like Graham to be out of contact like this. I don't want to wait too long, Macha says. We'll need some time to react if there are any problems with the awakening process, and I would prefer to deal with any issues before Fallon has to leave us. Fallon looks glum at the reminder, but nods her agreement. Fifteen minutes pass, and Graham does not appear, nor does he answer our hails. Mabry hasn't seen him. Arden hasn't seen him. I'm concerned, but we don't have time to go looking for him. We have to start. Without Graham, we need someone to provide a point of focus for Carloa when she awakens. Given how negative my interactions with her were, we decide that Macha will take that role. I'll still stand as point person for the mystery man. We take our places with the technician administering the final awakening cocktail to Carloa, while Macha stands next to her bed, leaning over her. Fallon keeps an eye on drone readings and monitors from the other side of the room. I stand next to the mystery man's bed, making sure I'm not the first thing Carloa sees when and if she wakes up. Carloa has no trouble swallowing the cocktail, and within a few seconds her eyelids flutter open and she draws in a deep breath. What happened? she says softly in the tone of someone who's been awakened from a long sleep. Where am I? You're in clinical on Iona, says Macha, patting Carloa's hand. You are in stasis, but you're going to be fine. Oh, I... You brought me out of stasis? She whispers. Yes, and everyone in this room helped in some way. Macha steps back so Carloa can look around her. When Carloa's eyes fall on me, I hold my breath, but there's only a momentary flinch from her before her eyes drop to the mystery man and her expression changes into one of expansive joy. You found him? You brought him out of stasis, too? She says in a tone of wonder. Yes, I say. We'll wake him up next. Oh! Oh, I thought I'd never see him again. Tears are spilling from Carloa's eyes now, and she seems to have forgotten anyone else is in the room. He's all right? Yes, he's fine, Macha says. You're both perfectly fine and healthy. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Carloa says, looking from Macha to me. I don't know how you did it, but oh, such a gift. I can't thank you enough. You're very welcome, I say. I'm glad you know who he is. He didn't have any identification on him when we found him, and I was worried he would be alone here when he woke up. Who is he? 
Carlois's eyes light up as she looks at the face of the mystery man again. He's my fiancé, she says, beaming with love. His name is Tomas Berenbart. My whole body goes cold. Fallon gasps aloud and snaps her holo shut. I do my best to maintain a calm, pleasant face for Carloa as I say, Well, welcome back, Carloa. Macho will awaken Tomas now, and you two can have some time together. I'll come back later to see how you're doing. I must be a better actor on the outside than I am on the inside because Carloa smiles broadly at me and nods her head. Macha steps forward with a cocktail for the real Tomas, and all of Carloa's attention goes to her fiancé. Fallon and I sprint out of the room. I know where he is. I know where he is, I say breathlessly. We have to get over to Fanny's pod. He was going to be there after lunch. We run down the stairs and grab two scooters. As we fly across the square, I try desperately to hail Fanny and Graham. No response. I hail Arden on his private channel. Tomas is our mole, I tell him. We're on the way to Fanny's. We can't race Fanny or Graham. On my way, he says. Be careful. Fallon and I pull into the pod's courtyard and drop our scooters. It's well past lunch and the pod is quiet. We exchange anxious glances as we creep toward the kitchen entry. It's eerily silent as we step inside, and we pause, listening. The whisper of Iona's sands suddenly seems deafening. And then we hear a moan. It's low and oddly muffled, and we can't get a fix on it at first. Where? Fallon mouths to me. I point to the door of the pod's supply locker, and we both warily take several steps in its direction. Another moan, still muffled, but slightly louder. Executive decision time. I push Fallon behind me, slide back the single bar that keeps the locker closed, and throw open the door. Inside, Graham is lying on the floor. His face is swaddled in a rich purple cloth, and as Fallon and I pull him out of the locker into the kitchen, I notice its edge is torn and frayed. I prop him up as Fallon removes the fabric from his head. He's only barely conscious. As the last piece falls away, I first see the gash on the back of his head where he was clearly struck with something large and heavy. But my heart almost stops when I see a pattern of blue on his face, starting at his nose and spreading across his features like a wave. Don't panic, Fallon says, speaking to me rather than Graham. Everything is going to be all right. Hail Matcha, get a gurney here. Let's get him out into the courtyard. We pull Graham through the kitchen and out into the courtyard as far away from the pod structure as possible. I can't help but be reminded of him pulling Polly and then me through the smoke-filled warehouse months ago, and I find myself becoming almost impossibly angry. My home, my friends, my life. No one has the right to take this from me. The words, not a second time, burn in my brain, and I stand up, ready to take on anything that crosses my path. As soon as Matcha confirms she's on the way, I'm ready for action. We have to get inside now, I say. Fallon's eyes are hard with determination. This time we run into the pod, slowing only when we reach the middle of the deserted common room. It's quiet. There's no one here. Fanny? I call. There's no answer, but I hear something. A scraping and thumping coming from the small hallway that leads to Fanny's room. Fanny, are you there? Fallon and I walk stealthily to the entrance and peer down the hall. At its far end is the blocked lift to the ruined star parlor. Approximately halfway down the hall is Fanny's closed door. Fanny! I call again, and we move down the hall to her door. I lift my hand and knock, but we're startled by a voice from behind us. I don't think she's home, the voice says. We spin around to see the person we've thought of all this time as Tomas, standing about 20 feet away between us and the doorway to the common room. 
In one hand, he holds a metal canister with a spray nozzle affixed to its top. In the other, a small black electronic device flashing red. A detonator. We know who you really are, Ardival, Fallon says. The false Tomas lets out a long put-upon sigh. So you woke up my sister and she gave me up after all, he says and shrugs. We have a complicated relationship. All that was so very kind of her to share her credentials with me so I could get into the storage, Warren. Technically, I suppose she didn't really share them. I just took them, but she was turning blue, so it wasn't really going to be an inconvenience for her. Carloa didn't give you up, I say. We figured it out without her. No matter. His eyes glitter. She preferred that goon she met on Bardazel to me anyway. He was trying to convince her to leave with them. I couldn't let that happen. You dosed the real Tomas and assumed his identity. Why complicate things by sending him to Iona? I ask. Why send him to me? He barks out a laugh. Well, I promised Carloa that I wouldn't separate them. I'm not a complete shit. We clearly have different definitions of what makes someone a shit, Fallon interjects. Ardival rolls his eyes dramatically. Fallon, I'm hurt, he says, his voice dripping with sarcasm. Please don't interrupt me. Faith asked a question. I'd like to answer it. Fallon raises one eyebrow and gestures dramatically. Do continue. He huffs briefly as if irritated and resumes his speech. I had the crate addressed to you, Faith, as soon as I found out you were Carloa's pod leader. I thought you would open it right away, you see, and Carloa would get the message that I was watching. I intended it to be added insurance that she wouldn't give away my plan and to send a message to Governor Thorne as well, but you didn't do that, so I had to go to plan B. You dosed her, I say. I did. He shakes the canister in his hand, with something quite similar to this, in fact, although much less lethal. What's the point of doing this here on Iona? Fallon asks him sharply. Didn't you just finish the job you were hired to do on Bardazel? I finished the job I was hired for, but there was clearly more to do, he responds. My clients were quite pleased with my initiative. They now know that Iona is extremely valuable real estate. After I take care of the little detail of turning it into a pariah planet, I'm in line for some rich rewards. Too bad you won't live long enough to collect them. Arden's voice rings out in the common room. I can't see him, but I know he wouldn't have come to this fight unarmed. Carrot Ardival looks toward him and strangely, inexplicably, smiles. Oh, good, he says, licking his lips. Commander Wilson, right on time. I would have hated for you to miss this. I had planned for you all to simply die together, but, you know, plans change. I hear Arden shift. Ardival immediately responds, waving the detonator in the air. I wouldn't do that if I were you, Commander. This device is connected to a dozen spheres of blue placed strategically all around this rotten little town. The instant I activate it, they blow, and blue goes everywhere. So you get to pick between two dead people or two hundred dead people, give or take. Dead? That means you weaponize the blue even further, Fallon says, her expression hardening. Mm, yes, Ardival replies, still keeping a wary eye on Arden. Stasis first, followed by death a few days later. We don't have the storage space for all those live bodies. You'll be able to experience it firsthand because I'm going to share a little with all three of you. I field tested it a few moments ago on Governor Thorne. It can be delivered many ways, but my theory is that it will be particularly effective applied to fabric and hell to the victim's face. Graham. My stomach flips over. It was bad enough thinking about him going into stasis, but at least we know how to deal with that now. But dead? In a matter of days? Does your client know about this enhancement? Because the fact that it didn't kill people was the entire value of blue as a weapon, Fallon says. 
The Governance Council still takes an extremely dim view of genocide. I think those rich rewards you're anticipating may not stack up well once whoever hired you figures that out. Ardival's bravado falters for a moment, but he recovers quickly. I imagine that's true, he says with a sneer. Fortunately, my client isn't bound by the directives of the Governance Council. Fallon and I exchange glances quickly. We both know what this means. Ardival may not be working for the company after all. Then who was stupid enough to pay you to do this? asks Fallon, her tone bordering on anger. But Artival merely smirks at us for a long moment and offers no reply. You know, he finally says, resuming his bizarre conversational cadence, this canister will direct a jet of liquid accurately to a distance of 30 feet, but in a closed space like this hallway, its effect could spread much further in a matter of seconds. He shakes the canister and I involuntarily jump. Fallon grasps my hand and backs us up a few more steps past Fanny's door. What about you, then? I ask, struggling to keep my voice from shaking. You'll dose yourself if you fire that thing off. Not at all, Ardival says, flashing an eerie smile. It's a highly accurate spraying mechanism with hardly any scatter. Although he's holding the bottle out toward us, he's still watching Arden. And thanks to my sister, I have the advantage of being immune to all forms of blue. We found the serum in her pack, Fallon says. We've all had some, so we're immune too. Now what? Now nothing, Ardival shrugs, dramatically unimpressed. I knew someone would eventually find those vials. I removed the real immunity serum as soon as we arrived on Iona and replaced it with a placebo. That mat tracker let me know the instant you opened her pack, so I was able to time my plan perfectly. I'm sorry to tell you that nothing you've consumed has conveyed any immunity at all. Suddenly, Ardival swings away from us and fires the spray stream into the common room. I hear Arden cry out and then a thump as he falls to the floor. No! I scream and start to move forward, but Fallon catches my arm and pulls me back. Now Ardival turns his full attention to us. I wanted him to see you die, Faith, he says, taking slow steps toward us. He caused some serious problems for my employer in the past. I thought I'd be satisfied with just killing him at first, but then I found you here. Such an instigator, ready to cause even more complications with your probing and planning and heroic deeds, and your past with the company and all that you know. Ah, it was beyond perfect. Alas, with Commander Wilson dying in the common room at the moment, your demise will be somewhat less satisfying. But I at least have the bonus of killing off one of the most imperious, arrogant bitches I've ever met along with you, so that will make up for it a bit. Why, thank you, you sweet talker, you, says Fallon dryly. She and I take several more steps back, almost to the end of the hallway, as Artival continues to stalk forward. And all this time I had no idea what Fanny saw in you. Fanny, Artival snorts, casting a sidelong glance at her door. That was really taking one for the team. But it was the only way to insert myself somewhere I could track everyone crucial to my plan. I suppose Fanny might have grown on me over time, but alas, it was just not to be. Just more collateral damage, like her brother, that kid who lost his arm, and that irritatingly chirpy Barzillian girl. I do owe you a debt, Fallon, for proving my employer's theory about the Sands of Iona, though. That little adventure with the girl did not go as I'd intended, but in the end it saved me a lot of time. And everyone's preoccupation with it made it much easier for me to plant the explosives and the ridiculous quantity of belongings you were having dragged up to the star parlor. I hear a commotion happening outside the pod, the sound of shouted voices and orders being given. My headset crackles to life, and Graham's voice, Graham? says, keep him talking, we're moving in. Why did you send that crate that exploded on Polly? I ask, hoping Artival doesn't hear the hope in my voice. Artival rolls his eyes again and then looks at me impassively. That was meant for the traitor Graham Thorne. I had envisioned him rushing to open that warehouse crate as soon as you discovered Tomas. 
Barring that, I assume Commander Wilson would open it. It was designed to do exactly what it did, you see. As he speaks, Ardival is raising both hands, holding the detonator high in one hand while carefully aiming the sprayer at us. But that idiot brother of Fanny's got to it first, so another change in plans. Doesn't matter. It all ends for Iona and for you, here, right now. Suddenly, a thunderous roar and a blaze of light erupts from our left, followed by a deluge of disintegrating plaster, dirt, acrylic, and metal raining down on us. Fallon and I crouch low and cover our heads. When the debris cloud clears, we see the very little that remains of Carrot Ardival, still holding the spray canister and detonator, covered with the very little that remains of the wall between Fanny's room and the hallway. Through that now very large opening, I see Fanny, her back braced against Polly's roll-top desk, with a fiercely determined look on her face, and Fallon's freshly fired weapon in her hands. Chapter 28 I hear shouting in the common room. Within seconds, Graham and Mabry appear at the end of the hallway. Are you all right? Graham shouts. I look at Fallon, whose expression could not be more smug. She surveys the vaguely disgusting remains of Carrot Ardival, and her lips curve up in satisfaction. We're fabulous, she says, straightening herself and smoothing her hair with one hand, as though it's not full of dust and plastic particles. I think fake Tomas just got the point that Fanny doesn't want to see him anymore. Graham is picking his way through the debris, working his way toward Fanny's room. I'm relieved to see only a faint blue spatter across his nose like an old tattoo instead of the rapidly spreading bright turquoise I expected. Mabry gestures to me. Come out here, she says. Arden needs you. Graham reaches out one hand and helps me climb through the rubble and remains until I reach the part of the hallway that still has structural integrity. My heart leaps when I see Arden, not dead, but instead sitting upright on the floor, rubbing his face and cursing energetically. There's a pale blue pattern like an old cobweb stretching from his right eye to his temple and up into his hairline on the right side of his forehead. Macha is kneeling beside him, but when she sees me emerge from the hallway, she stands and steps back with an encouraging smile. I run to him and collapse at his side, throwing my arms around him and feeling the terror I've been holding in reserve bubble up to the surface. Son of a bitch got me right in the eye, Arden mutters. I thought you were dead. Why aren't you dead? I shriek nonsensically, gasping with relief. Inexplicably, I then punch him hard in the arm. Ow, he objects, grabbing his bicep where my fist landed. Should I apologize for not being dead? And now I'm laughing and crying at the same time. He looks into my eyes and tucks another wild strand of my hair behind my ear. I thought you were dead too, he says. For a second, I, I thought we all were. How did Fallon get her weapon back? She didn't, I say. Fanny's our hero. There are a lot of heroes here today, Matcha says, just as Fallon emerges from the hallway, carefully carrying the detonator and the spray canister, which she must have plucked from Carrot Ardival's dead hands. She's followed by Graham and Mabry, both of whom have their arms around Fanny to steady her as she walks. Fanny's face is pale and her eyes wide as she looks around the room at us. Graham and Mabry are physically holding her up. They ease her to the floor next to Arden and me, and we immediately hug. You saved us all, I say to her, but she shakes her head. No, no, it's just... I saw Tomas come into the pod, and I thought he was here to pester me with more questions, so I hid in my room, and then I heard him attack Graham in the common room. I was so scared. I remembered Fallon's weapon was still in the desk, and I couldn't let him kill you. I couldn't let him destroy our home. I couldn't let him say those things about Polly. Her voice breaks, and she begins to sob. It's all right, Fanny, I say quietly. He was an awful person. Worse than you know. I remember then that we haven't yet shared the true identity of the man who now lies in pieces in the hallway outside what used to be Fanny's door. There's a lot to catch up on, I say. Can we at least sit somewhere more comfortable than the floor? 
I'd like to get Arden and Graham in for some quick tests, and I think Fanny might find a sedative and some uninterrupted rest helpful, Matcha says. It wouldn't hurt for Faith and Fallon to be checked out as well, so let's reconvene at clinical, shall we? I have hover gurneys waiting. Clinical wasn't the comfort level I had in mind, but Matcha's tone conveys that there will be no arguing. We obediently file out into Iona's scattering afternoon sunlight. Mabry stays behind to set up a security barrier blocking access to the entire pod and to direct the team that will perform the cleanup, starting with the removal of Carrot Artival's remains and a thorough scan of Ionatown to locate and immobilize any containers of blue connected to the detonator. Fanny, Arden, and Graham are loaded onto gurneys. Fallon and I pick up the sand scooters we earlier abandoned in the courtyard, and we all head to clinical together. Macha's diagnostics reveal nothing wrong with any of us beyond stress and exhaustion. Even Arden and Graham, who I took for dead based on Ardival's claims, check out as healthy and normal, although both seem to have acquired a faint, permanent tattoo where the blue initially hit them. Fanny is rattled but unharmed, and gratefully accepts sedation in a room next door to Polly's. The rest of us huddle in a conference room, near the room I occupied during my stay in clinical after the warehouse explosion. We start by explaining the true identity of the person we've known all these months as Tomas. When Artival came to Bartizel, he made it a point to target a new transfer, and his sister's boyfriend apparently filled the bill perfectly. He dosed him well before Carlo wound up at the compound, probably partially out of spite. Poor Tomas then got packed up in that crate and sent to the holding facility while Artival took over his identity, I say. Once Artival knew where the Bartizelian transferees had landed, he had both crates shipped here. The one containing Tomas went specifically to Faith, in part to intimidate his sister into keeping what she knew a secret, and also to serve as a warning to Arden and to Graham. But Faith didn't open the crate, so he had to move on to Plan B, which was dosing his sister outright, Fallon explains. The real Tomas is now fully awake and doing very well, Macha says. He and Carloa will stay in clinical until they get their strength back, but they're otherwise healthy and able to join the rest of our population. Am I the only person who is confused that Arden and Graham aren't dead? I ask. Macha smiles. I hear you've all had a dose of immunity serum and it appears to work. Fallon huffs in indignation and mutters, of course it works. When did anybody get a dose of immunity serum? Now I'm deeply confused. Well, I got some a couple of nights ago. Uh, I was a test case, Graham offers. He didn't drop dead, so the rest of us got a dose this morning, Fallon says. Of course. I hear Fallon's voice over breakfast saying, this is my mother's special Gordonian brew. But Artival said he replaced the immunity serum in Carlo's pack with something else, I say. How did you... Fallon interrupts me with a wave of her hand. Oh, I knew that wasn't genuine immunity serum the instant I started working with it, she says. Fortunately, I was able to get my hands on the real thing. A conspiratorial smile passes between Graham and Fallon. The sprites, I ask. Graham, you had them all this time? I had some of them, he admits. Artival got three, but I got the other four. And you didn't let us know this exactly why? When I saw what was in those sprites, I was worried, he says. I didn't know who was expecting it, or what they might do, and I didn't want anyone to know I had them before I got that figured out. Once Fallon told us they were intended for her and she understood what they contained, and I had to sort out what to do next. Graham looks down at his hands contemplatively. I shouldn't have even had to think about it. My family's enterprise has been interested in blue since I started working on the weapons program on Bartizel, and this could have been a tremendous boost for their plans, but it was obvious that returning them to Fallon was the right thing to do. That night you two went up on the ridge, I say. You took her where you hid the sprites. Yes, Fallon confirms. 
The contents of those sprites were the last piece of the puzzle I needed. Otherwise, I couldn't have gotten everything ready before my time here was up. A shadow crosses her face at the mention of her impending removal, now only hours away, and the whole room goes quiet. It's Arden who breaks the ponderous silence. We need a drink, he says. Break out as much of that fancy brew as you can get your hands on, Graham. Let's find a good spot to light and give Ms. March an impressive send-off. Fallon stares at the table in front of her, her face a twisting mass of emotions. But she finally lets a small smile cross her lips, and when she lifts her head, I see Graham catch her eye and wink. We wind up at the presentation theater in the small former shop front with the cheerful mermaid on the wall. Ever resourceful, Wenda has snagged several armloads of rugs, pillows, cushions, and blankets from surplus, and meets us there with a loaded hover flat. After an hour of adjusting and arranging, the shop is transformed into a cozy little den. Graham arrives with the requested brew and a box of votive candles, which cast a comforting light from the shop's translucent shell. The first round of drinks has barely been poured when Hen, Holly, and Bennett walk in, carrying trays loaded with muffins. We started the day with a toast, I say, as everyone settles into a comfortable spot. I think it's fair that we should end the day with one. Every person in this room, and several people not in this room, owe a debt of gratitude to you, Fallon. Even though our first meeting was almost our last, I'm glad we persevered. Fallon grimaces, then shrugs casually. Please, she says. I've basically been a pain in the ass since the moment I arrived. That's true, chirps Winda, but that doesn't mean we don't owe you. Everyone nods their full agreement. To Fallon, I call out, and we all salute and drink. We're on our third round of toasts when Mabry bursts into the room, an enormous smile on her face. She plops onto a pillow next to Winda and rests her head against Winda's shoulder for a moment, saying, I have news. News? I ask, passing her a glass of brew and a muffin. A couple of things, she says, accepting both gratefully and plowing into the muffin. We found all the spheres Artival had hidden around town, at least all the ones that were connected to the detonator, she explains, still chewing. It took a little fancy reverse engineering to figure out where the signal was going without setting them off, but we got it done. Of course, being the grade-A creep that he was, he might have put out more that weren't on the detonator, but I sent out a holo alert to everyone on Iona to be on the lookout for spheres and to report them immediately to Graham or me if they spot anything suspicious. There's dead air as Mabry washes her muffin down with brew, then gestures for another round. Okay, that's good, I finally prompt. What else? Lost in a deep swig of brew, Mabry initially knits her eyebrows together at me over the top of her glass, then arches them in realization. Oh, right, I should have led with this, she says, exchanging the now-empty glass for a full one. It's about the company transport. Fallon's back stiffens almost imperceptibly. What about it, she asks. They should be arriving any minute. Well, that was the original plan, but after our, uh, incident here, I had to file a crisis report with everyone who does business with us, and Macha followed up with an injury-death report that led to, um, shall we say, concerns about safety. So, Fallon barks, a flicker of her normal self-emerging, get to the damn point. They're holding at the Meridian Transfer Station until we get all these terrible safety problems under control, Mapri says. That's obviously going to take days, maybe even weeks to address. Who knows? They're just going to have to wait for our report, giving the all clear. Fallon blinks in surprise. They're not coming? Well, not right now, at least. The room goes quiet as we all wait for Fallon's response. We know, of course, that the company will come eventually, safety report or not. They've made the investment of time, equipment, and personnel to retrieve Fallon, and after word gets out about what really happened here, they will probably want her back more than ever but at least today won't end with a friend being dragged away in disgrace. How about that, Fallon? You're stuck with us for a while longer, Graham says. The whole room seems to relax just a touch. Mabry punches her in the arm in solidarity. 
Fallon's eyes are rimmed with red when she looks around the room at all of us in turn. Maybe tears, maybe exhaustion, maybe the impact of Iona's restless sand. I don't know what to say, she murmurs. How about, let's go home, I prompt, standing up. Come on, I'll grab you some more ugly clothes from Surplus. We walk out onto the square. Night has fallen. Iona's little weakling moon sit low on the horizon and the stars spill out above us, cold and bright. Arden puts his arm around my shoulders. Ahead of us, Mabry and Window walk hand in hand, and Holly pulls Bennett to her and links her arm through his. There's a lot here worth saving, Fallon says, falling in beside us. No matter what happens to me, I hope you can save it. We have to try, I say. It's home. We have to fight for it. I remember the last time I spoke those words. Sure, I was ready to take on the company and defend my home and loved ones. It didn't go the way I wanted then. This time, I'm more prepared, I'm smarter, and I have more support. But there's even more at stake. Arden peers at me as though reading my mind. No deals this time, he promises, tightening his arm around me. No leaving. What about sledgehammers, I ask. No promises about sledgehammers, he says. I have to keep some of my options open. In spite of everything, it makes me smile. Our group pauses at the edge of residential. Lights shine in pod windows where people I know well are eating and drinking and marveling over the day's events, having no idea how close they came to disaster. Or, for that matter, how close to disaster they might still be. The attacker is dead, but Iona is far from safe. It's still in the company's crosshairs for certain, and possibly on the radar of other entities that might be even less concerned about their public reputation or the approval of the governing council. We have a long way to go, I say. It's going to take ingenuity and guts and probably some incredibly stupid stunts along the way if we're going to beat the company at its own game. Well, then there's no one more qualified for the job than us, says Graham. Lead on, Faith. We're with you. Everyone nods in unison, even Fallon. Then let's get some rest, I say. We've got heroics to plan. The end of book one. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time for my live stream Q&A. You can find the link on my website and in all my social media. The podcast will be changing next week. Don't forget to follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing.